we are live. Yay! Okay, so welcome everyone to uh, Connected Learning TV. This is the second webinar in our September series entitled Back to School, um, Creating the School Year We Want to Live In. And if you're watching this right now, we hope you'll share it out with your networks on Twitter, or Facebook, or Google Hangouts, whatever your social media of choice is. Um, I'm Kim Jackson. I'm an associate professor of composition and literacy at California State University, Chico, way northern California. Um, we're spending this month thinking about how we design classrooms when we go back to school for inquiry, for community, for helping students feel like they're also the experts, and we'll end the month thinking about how we support our own professional growth within a really busy school year. And I'm super excited for today because we get to hang out with Leslie Atkins and Peter Kittle and Suzanne Mills Crawford, um, thinking about how we support inquiry and curiosity in our classrooms. And we, we're thinking, we, we're hoping we can kind of problematize or, or think about what it's like to be in institutions of schooling where we're often asked to create student learning outcomes in advance of even meeting the students. And so how do we support inquiry and student-driven curiosity when um, what's, what we're supposed to do is known ahead of time? So we want to problematize that. Um, and before we dive into the chat, just a couple of details. If you're playing along on Twitter, I made my little cheat sheet. Our hashtags are Connected Learning and B2S. Um, and so we're hoping that if you'd like, you can post comments or questions in Twitter, and we'll try to answer them. You can also um, use the Q&A feature that you should see within the video player. And then the webinar is also being um, co-streamed on National Writing Projects, uh, educationinnovator.org. So before we begin, I was going to have everyone introduce themselves. Again, I'm very excited. And Leslie, I think we'll have you start if that's okay, and then Peter and then Suzanne. So um, a little bit about you. All right. Uh, just really briefly, I'm, I'm Leslie Atkins. I have a joint appointment in physics and in science education, also at Cal State Chico. Uh, I teach I, I teach a range of courses, but the primary ones that I teach are for future teachers, an intro physics and a more of an inquiry class. And I would say that one of my courses definitely has an emergent curriculum. The other one is pretty well-defined and advanced. I'm happy to talk about kind of the differences between the two. I've worked closely with Kim in the past on um, writing in my classes. So do you want me to go next? <laughs> OK. <laughs> so I'm Peter Kittle. <clears throat> I am uh, English faculty at CSU Chico, along with Kim. Kim's one of my colleagues. Um, and I also direct the Northern California Writing Project. Um, so I work with uh, lots of practicing teachers through the Writing Project's work um, in the North State. And I also work with uh, mostly future teachers in my um, teaching assignment. So both future elementary teachers and future English teachers. I'm Suzanne Mills Crawford. I'm a student teaching supervisor at Mills College in Oakland. And in this work, I'm on a hiatus from my real and also maybe dual love, which is being a middle school teacher, middle school literacy teacher. And Suzanne, your, um, your background in middle school, I mean, you have a degree in middle school education and taught in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. Far away from Oakland, rurally, yes. really rural. 
Yeah. Yes. So excited. Um, so I, what I, one of the things I like about the three of you is the range and also that um, inquiry as it plays out in science classrooms and in language arts classrooms and then of course just supporting students questions. So um, Peter and I <laughs> met in the hallway today and, um, and Leslie had posed this really interesting question that I thought we'd start with and we can all chime in or a few of us but um, Leslie had asked, like, when you hear the title Student Learning Outcomes as Emergent, which is part of this week's webinar's title, um, so what does that mean? <laughs> Can we kind of start to unpack student learning outcomes as emergent? And, and Leslie followed up by asking, what's the content of our course if we think of outcomes as emergent? And I thought maybe, Leslie, you could kick us off just kind of exploring that, and then we could chime in. Sure, and I, I kind of also wonder if this is different between the sciences where kind of what our content is is so prescribed versus in English where I think it's a lot easier to say um, content as a skill or something like that, but I'd be curious to hear what you all say. But um, So for me, one of the things that's tricky for science faculty, I think, when they hear about um, emergent curriculum is like, but I actually I have to cover forces, I have to cover energy, I have to cover Newton's third law or whatever. Um, and my kind of vision of that is like, that's that's the land, that tells me what territory we'll be playing around in, but the routes that students are going to take to access that, um, that content is going to be really student driven. So I might come in knowing that this is going to be a really rich question to start our, our lesson with. Um, something along the lines of, is every color in the rainbow? Or um, can we, like, let's create a stop motion video of something that we think is falling the way objects really fall. And I know from there students are going to come up with a, a whole fascinating way, um, many ranges of ways of thinking about that, and then using student ideas to help develop the curriculum and explore that territory a little bit more. So when I say emergent, um, I'm very consistent on, on what the scientific practices are I think we'll be using that'll help them develop and what kind of territory we'll be exploring in, in my field. Um, but it really is kind of emergent in terms of um, how the student ideas are going to help us explore that territory, if that makes sense. Yeah, actually, um, one of the things, and I think, I think Peter, you could weigh in on this too, is if you think about when, when sometimes we talk about inquiry, people can think of it as anything goes, that students, you know, whatever you're curious about. <laughs> and um, one of the things I've learned from working in your science class is it's not, it's not exactly, it's not exactly that. It's not anything goes. <laughs> it's within a bounded, like you said, is every color in the rainbow is still kind of a bounded question, but students could find lots of ways into that question. <clears throat> I think in English, there's, um, and I'll just use first year comp as an example, which is already such a weird class um, because it is hard to teach writing outside of a discipline, right? So it's already a very hard class to teach. But um, there are people like Tom Fox who are the masters of students truly doing inquiry of whatever they want, but um, it's, it's really hard to support. And I have an easier time if I bound it in some way around web literacy, digital literacy, digital culture that tends to be, and then have questions, at, students ask questions within that bounded idea. And Peter, I'm wondering in some of your classes, can, are, they, are they whatever they want or what's, what's the content and then where do they have room within that content? Yeah, uh, yeah there's, I mean, 
I, there's generally bounds. I, I think that that's that that's always true. That I have that I put bounds on things. So I'm teaching a class right now on something that uh, I've never you know this is, I'm teaching a senior level literature class which I've never done. Um, and I normally think of myself as a comp literacy kind of a person more than a literature person, but um, we're we're studying t contemporary British literature, and so I've I've opened it up. There's lots of choice in the curriculum. The students are choosing books. Um, we're not all reading the same books, so they're reading books that they're interested in, but they're books that are from uh, a particular literary prize, the Man Booker Prize, which has lots of controversy about it. People don't agree about like the choices that are made. They don't agree about the people who act as judges. There's arguments about what counts as quality. There's all these kinds of things that are really interesting, and so the students are going to be working on these sort of bigger questions in the ways that I think it fits for them to think about them. Um, but it's not like anything goes, anything written since, say, 1970 or something like that. It's within this, you know, specific thing because there's, you know, people have talked about it. It's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a thing that is real and that matters and it's part of, like, sort of literary culture. Um, so it's, you know, it, it fits the discipline, but it also has lots of room for them to do Things that I that I don't know what they will be. Yeah, I mean, you know, so. I'm having a heck of a time unmuting myself. I have to tell you, Suzanne, um, you're probably the closest to 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 the rest of us, uh, the person who's closest to working with future teachers in a right when they're at the edge of do they're in the classrooms, right? And so right. I'm wondering, I'm wondering how much. Um, how much are they being asked when they create or design for a class to say, "These are my. This is what students will learn at the end of the right." It seems like a big part of teacher preparation, teacher ed, is this is. I want to be able to say this is what my students will learn, and I'm wondering how you talk to them about choice, particularly around reading, when they're also having to say, which is reasonable. Like you kind of know what sorta what they'll know. I just wonder how you approach that. So I think that um, the metaphor of emergence as parallel to sort of a, as a birth metaphor is particularly useful. Um, what, especially in the language arts classrooms and English classrooms, my students are passionate social justice educators and the way they see their work is opening the minds and hearts of their students to think and write and speak and read with integrity, with fire for um, equity and given those dispositions that are the outcomes then they can sort of um, uh, massage the externally imposed outcomes. Um, it, it, it's a really tricky space because particularly given this context wherein our, our world is defined in these common core standards which for in practice in many classrooms move away from this heart-based I guess um, kindness to connect to your work from last week that the a curriculum that has this heart that um, they find themselves really sort of stuck but when they do we do guide them to focus on 
outcomes that are around becoming and their identities more so than product. Man, I, I like that a lot. I, I like I mean I just you're reminding me that um, and Leslie and I have certainly had lots of conversations about this that uh, we think sometimes about the outcome is just a way of being. <laughs> the outcome is that is that I hope that a student leaves a writing class knowing that it's a nice gesture to reread their text before they give it to someone. Like that's just a nice thing to do. Not that I would say at the end of the semester students can all fix their commas, right? That that's a very different approach to thinking about what an outcome is. I don't know, Leslie, do you want to weigh in on that at all? Yeah, I guess also my little notes that I was taking was thinking about disposition and identity as an outcome. And our, I think if you have a certain background in training and education, it's easy for you to say, well, yeah, that's a learning outcome, right? Like learning is disposition and learning is identity. But I think it's hard. Um, when I'm writing a syllabus that has to go up the chain of command to really justify that disposition can be that the outcome of my class and when people are talking about assessment, um, what that looks like as identity as an outcome of science instruction and it, I mean maybe maybe I'm overreaching but I also feel like in science that that line is even harder um, to cross that we, we don't talk about um, love and feelings quite as much as I think you do in the literature world so um, so I am definitely on board with this idea. Of course, disposition is a is a learning outcome for my science classes, but I think that's an even harder sell sometimes in my world. So, so how do you work around that? I mean, so you just let the thing. I know what Peter's going to say. He's going to say, "I write it in and let it go up the chain of command, and I do what I want." <laughs> So this is thinking back to the old standards. So the new in science, we have the next generation science standards, right, that are coming out. And we used to have the, the last set of standards had several strands. You know, there's the physics and the life sciences and the whatever geosciences. And then there was an inquiry strand of standards. Um, and what, what the next generation science standards say is, no, inquiry needs to be woven in with everything else. Like you teach content by engaging in inquiry. But it used to be that I could say, oh, I'm teaching a class that does these standards. So this is an outcome. <laughs> um, and, and I totally get why we don't want inquiry to stand apart. But the way I the way I got the syllabus for the course I teach here that's highly emergent, I would say, um, is by is by being able to call attention to, you know, science ed literature says these are these are goals for science instruction and kind of foregrounding those in my class. So and let it go up the chain of command. <laughs> And the chain of command came back at one point and said, you know, Seinfeld, Seinfeld's a course, a TV show about nothing. Leslie teaches a course about nothing. Um, and I, I said, well, let's, let's, let's be careful about how, how we frame what it is that I'm teaching. But uh, science can be a little harder, so. No, I think that's fair. I think that's totally fair. Peter, how do you, um, when when you and because you also work so much with future teachers, how do you end up talking about the that balance? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, this is it's an interesting thing because English also is, I mean, so you know, English is also bound by the Common Core state standards or the California standards as they're calling them now, um, and so it's problematic uh, in terms of. Understanding the ways in which, um, it, in which people can be sort of true to their uh, knowledge of the discipline, 
um, while also adhering to the sort of intent of the standards. So sometimes there's there's massaging that happens in between those sorts of things. Um, and a lot of times, I mean, it's, and I, and I work with people who are in the classroom right now who are in, you know, in-service teachers as well as pre-service teachers. And lots of times it's, a, it's an issue of um, advocating for the discipline in particular ways with administrators or others. Um, so, I mean, we don't necessarily, we don't have the, uh, you know, we don't have, I don't have Leslie, I don't have the, the thing where my, where colleagues in the discipline say something like that um, so much, but but maybe administrators or things don't really understand the things that are going on. And so um, having, having knowledge of the field's descriptions of what counts in terms of pedagogical practices and applications of the, of the disciplines, um, principles, theories, et cetera, um, as a way to dis be descriptive of what you do, not defensive, like, <gasps> you know, oh, well, um, I'm trying to, you know, instead, like, oh, yeah, I have a great reason for doing this stuff, and let me tell you about it. Um, and that that tends to be um, a, a more proactive approach, I guess, um, than what teachers often find themselves in, which is feeling like they have to be defensive about something that they're doing because it seems like it seems like it's about nothing, or it seems like it's just cool, or it's something like that. But in fact, it's supporting a whole range of dispositions or identity positions or other kinds of things that um, that will help the students and that you know support the teachers, uh, I guess, dedication to the to the community uh, in the discipline. I don't know if that makes sense. I think it was babbling. <laughs> No, it totally makes sense. In fact, what you're making me think about, and maybe what we should talk about is, um, I mean, you hit on that people sometimes then see the classroom and, and can think, it's really hard to walk into someone's classroom who's doing inquiry-based teaching and see the teaching. Is that fair? I mean, I think, I think it's, uh, when you have people observe you and you're doing inquiry-based teaching or you're having students work through things they're interested in, it can be hard to see how much work goes into that or what the teacher's supposed to be doing at that time. I think it would be helpful for us to kind of describe what the classroom looks like if you're seeing student questions as kind of driving the curriculum. And or we could also kind of pick up, I mean, Leslie's really changed my approach to lesson planning. Um, I used to really kind of know what I was doing every day in a very uh, well-defined, bulleted way and I'm much more likely to be like what did we do last time so that informs what we do next time and so I don't know maybe one of those I, I love to hear you guys kind of riff off of like what your classrooms look like how you talk with future teachers about that messiness of workshop and um, kind of model or or even thinking through you know what would what would someone see what teachings going on when we're doing this kind of work um, I'm gonna jump in and just say real quickly that Part of it is, is it's not, you were talking about like sort of making it clear to somebody else who's like an outsider to your classroom or something, but I think for students as well that we, we explain what we're doing and why we're doing it as well um, because they, otherwise they don't, they don't necessarily understand why they're, you know, why we might be doing a particular kind of a thing. So I think that being explicit is, is an important thing. Like a, um, a teacher, class for future English teachers and I tell them that there are a number of assignments in the class that are going to have what they will see as very 
minimal like support for them. Um, and I tell them that it's that it's because they have to make some decisions in what they do with that, and that those decisions and the difficulty of them are going to mirror what happens when they are in charge of their own classes, and that they need to get really familiar with feeling like, oh man, you know, is this right? Is this not? I, you know, and and start to listen to their guts, I guess, and you know, and and figure out the ways that um, that they do negotiate complex situations that have a number of possible outcomes that they can determine or at least impact. Um, and so I'm real clear with them about why why it is that, that I'm not giving them like really, really explicit directions on the things because they're going to have to be the one that makes all those kinds of decisions when they become teachers themselves. And it's a really hard thing. And I remember it being really hard when I started teaching. I was a high school teacher before I um, got into higher ed, and, and that that was really hard at the start of my career, and I had had no sort of understanding that it was going to be so hard. I thought people would, like, give me stuff, and that didn't, doesn't work that way. So, um, so I mean, I, I guess that's part of how I address some of that. I can chime in as well. So I, um, I feel like in my first week or two, there's a lot of norm setting and, and uh, getting students into, I mean, it's so much about finding that first question that they just really want to dig into. So the one I mentioned before is kind of, is every color in the rainbow? Or can you put every color in a box of crayons in rainbow order? And if some get left out, why do they get left out? What's so special about Brown that he didn't get to be in the rainbow? And those kinds of they suddenly, I think for the students, once they're in it, it's actually easy for them to reflect and say what they're doing that's so absorbing and help them identify what science. Um, and I actually have a harder time with what Kim was saying, which is having someone who, who knows the right answer, right answer, come into the classroom and look at the, the dead ends that they're obviously on and wonder why I'm not correcting them or uh, wonder why I haven't provided a more scaffolded lesson or something that can make this all happen a little bit more quickly. And I think a lot of my the research that I do is calling attention to what's happening in those moments where you don't see what looks like correct science happening in this college classroom, uh, but kind of all the really complex, deeply scientific work that they're doing. So, And I would add that with my work both with my pre-service students and with my middle school students, I think this idea of disequilibrium equilibrium, that, that feels uncomfortable but has to become comfortable, it has to feel more than comfortable, it has to be exciting. Um, teaching students to take that on or supporting them and taking that on can is is central. And a big part of that, I think, is what Peter mentioned, is reflecting on it and saying, "What's going on? What am I feeling? What am I noticing about myself? What am I learning?" Just and and returning and returning and returning to that, the steps along the way, and to see to really see the function of struggle in the learning. So, um, actually, so that's making me, <laughs> it's making me wonder, um, so Leslie and I have had a lot of conversations and she started to pick up on it too, that the, not all students are comfortable with the struggle of it, of, of inquiry-based learning, right? And neither are teachers, like none of us are, it, it is, it can be uncomfortable because there's a little bit of living in the not knowing. Um, and so maybe, I, I think it'd be interesting to kind of talk about that as a challenge. Um, I find that for 
I don't know if I can say this is a general statement, so maybe you guys can help me sort this out. Like for students that that school has been really easy, like they like school and they like doing school and they've been good at school. Sometimes the an inquiry-based classroom or one that's driven by their own questions can be really off-putting and and make them feel like they're not as valued in that member because they're valued usually for knowing, not asking questions. Um, and I struggle with that. I struggle with that in my teaching, and I struggle wanting to make them feel like that's a space where they're valued as well. So I'm wondering, maybe if how how do you all handle that? <laughs> what do you all do? Uh, I'm, I'm making this face because <laughs> uh, I, I most of my teachers are future elementary teachers, and they don't like science. And to suddenly be in a space where they're allowed to play with paints. Um, and wonder about where colors come from. Like there, it is definitely the students who come into my classroom feeling expert in science that struggle the most. And so I'm kind of making this face um, to Kim while she's talking because I, it's a place where I struggle as well. Um, in in fact, Kim has sat in on a class where it became it became the thing in the class was kind of someone who identified as an expert as really struggling. Like this this isn't good science pedagogy. This isn't like she really was upset by how the how the course was was taught and I, I feel like I have some um, some repertoires and some readings. There's a really nice article on stupidity written by a scientist that talks about um, there's unproductive stupidity in science, but but you kind of you're looking for that place where you can be productively stupid as what it is to do and practice science. Um, and uh, so that these kinds of conversations and those moments where you finally does all click together for you, I think have been like wading through that kind of muck to get to a moment where you feel solid ground beneath your feet again usually is enough to bring along a lot of the more reluctant um, ones who want to play the student game. But I also still have I still have those moments with students who where they I just know they're gonna walk out of my door and be like, that was interesting. Let me get my traditional lab back out to practice with my students. So I'm curious what others have to say. I think that um, yeah I have I, I don't know. I it's helpful if there's a student in class that's had me for a different class, which happens sometimes but not very often. And I can say, because I, because some of the things that we'll do will seem, you know, they are non-traditional in lots of ways. And so I can, I can say to the class, you know, um, so-and-so has had me before. When I say that I don't have a set expectation for this particular assignment, but I just want to see that you have learned something and you show it to me in some way, um, you can trust me that I'm not going to like ding you because it isn't an essay or it's a, you know something like that. That there's that there that you know I'm I'm not trying to mess with you. I, I, and so I sort of so I sort of I do a little bit of um, I guess ethos building, right? That you know I try to uh, appeal to their uh, knowledge of me, whether it's through students that are already there in the class or other students that they know that have taken classes from me or something like that. That um, that we're that it will have an outcome that's valuable and that you don't have to you know it doesn't have to go in the way that every other English class you've taken is going to go or something and it's okay um, so I try to reassure but also like sort of let other people let them know that you know you can actually ask other people it's you know it's not crazy it'll work it's <laughs> you know it's okay so I, I don't know but it is but it's but it's a challenge because um, like you a lot of my classes are future elementary um, school teachers who are 
as Kim said, good at school. They want to be teachers because they've loved school all along and things. And so when things sort of disrupt their um, their sort of conceptions about that, then you know there's there's sometimes some choppy seas that you have to navigate. I think in my middle school classroom, just a strategy that I found helpful was to just have my end of the year students write a letter reflecting on their journey addressed to the next year students. I mean, we do that all the time in classes about advice for how to be a good sixth grader or, you know, like how to succeed as a senior in high school or like as, you know, whatever, right? There's lots of advice out there. But that advice isn't, isn't necessarily useful in this particular context when what we're inviting them to do is trust this journey, to join us and to take the risks and to trust themselves. And so I feel like that's, although a tiny little, really strategic move, I found it to be really helpful to invite my students to reflect. Um, I also feel really fortunate in my work at Mills right now to have this cohort of students. So I work in a program that is a humanities program. And so we have art students in the room, English teachers in the room, people who want to be humanities teachers in the room. Uh, and social studies teachers, history. I mean, they're just this huge range of futures that they're imagining for themselves. And because of their different life experiences prior to that, there are people who come straight from really successful college undergraduate careers, people who failed at three prior careers and are choosing this one, um, or have decided those past careers have led me to this place. There is a, a heterogeneity of sort of of comfort levels with the work and the learning and the year. And so um, we find that conversation is really helpful. Explicitly naming the, the parts that are hard can be very fruitful. And for them to know they're not the only ones that are feeling that hard and just bringing it right into the room. And then also for me to bring, bring it in too. So when I ask them to reflect on a, a particular day in the classroom in writing, or not even in writing, just reflect on it and, and bring something to me, then if I too do it my way and am articulate about my own, this is hard because, or you know, whatever, that, that builds a community of, of negotiators of learning. Well, it also seems like that you and Leslie are both talking about then is creating a space where the not knowing is okay, right? That that the, the it's okay to not know is I think, uh, and, and then built into that the not knowing is I've heard all of you kind of pointing in some ways to the reflective nature of that and the times to pause to say what do I know, where is this hard, what am I still confused about, like building that in, and even in your case, Suzanne, like. I mean, that's actually a structure. I, I really like the idea of there's a way in which I'll bet you build trust by having the middle schoolers who just went through with you <laughs> talk to the new grad. You get some buy-in because they're hearing from other middle schoolers. Like, listen, she's not completely whack. Whack-a-doodle. <laughs> yeah, I know that. They'll find that out later. Okay, but that's <laughs> or they actually write about that. I mean, they write about the things I've done that sort of prove that I they should trust me a little bit, you know. So yeah. I'm in that space too.
love that. I also I also like really explicitly naming. You said this, um, Leanna. The the parts that are hard, and I think helping students to identify that's hard because learning's hard, <laughs> versus that's hard because you're not doing it right. You know, um, and and there are times in my class when that's that's hard because that's actually not what we're doing here. You know, like you're not supposed to know the right answer. It's not hard because you don't know the right answer. That's the right kind of part. Um, so that that way of being explicit about about what should be hard about classrooms and what should be hard about learning, I think, really helps. Yeah. You know, you're reminding me that um, something that's been I'm liking better, at least. I, I still need to see, keep asking students about how this is working for them. Their products would tell me it's working for them, but I think I've gotten better at sharing with them the goals I have for an assignment or what I think assignment is going to do, what it's intended to do. And then all the freedom comes in how they get there. It's kind of what Peter was just talking about, actually, a little bit ago. Like, there's a lot of ways. Or, or you can even see Common Core that way. You know, there might be something that says work with fairy tales and second grade standards and compare versions of tales, but how you do that, you know, there's a million ways you could get at that. And, and so it's interesting. I think I used to focus more on the do this, do this, do this part of an assignment. And now I think I'm much more likely to say this is what I think this assignment will do for us. Like, like I, I hope you'll be reflective about your audience or I hope this assignment demonstrates that you're thinking about different modes and what they might do. And so how you get there, a lot of ways to get there. Can we come up with a brainstorm of a bunch of different ways that you could actually do that? And, and the assignments are, I mean, they're the things they produce, even when they fail, even when they think that that product failed, I, I still seem to blow me away, like mostly blow me away. Yeah. So I was thinking when you were talking there, Kim, um, I've been, like this this semester, um, I'm trying to think, I can't remember where these things showed up there. It's old and you probably know the references, but I don't. Anyway, um, through the, the um, that it, they've showed up in a couple of different readings and things like that that I've been doing in in cl for class and then outside of class. But um, of this sort of progression of learning, right, from declarative to procedural to sort of an automaticity kind of a thing. That um, when you first learn something, you can say something about it, but you don't really understand it. You have declarative knowledge of it, like you know, math involves you know number manipulation or something like that. That's declarative. It's not showing that you can actually do it. Um, and then you move into things where you are sort of enmeshed in whatever the issue is and are trying it out and it's still new to you and unfamiliar, but you're working in it. And then that leads to a kind of automaticity that sort of, and to put it in the terms we were using earlier, sort of like it, it, um, it gives you an identity or it gives you particular dispositions or something about that subject matter or things. And so I've been trying to like use those terms with my students this semester more strategically so that I can tell them, you know, that right now when we're just like learning this thing, you're going to have just, you're basically going to have declarative knowledge. You're going to know that it's a thing that exists, but you but and you can say stuff that you read about it, but you can't necessarily give examples about it yet. But then you will start to, you know, embody the idea in a way um, that will, um, that will lead you to be sort of in, you know, into the discourse community about that thing that whatever it happens to be so um, so I don't know I mean that's I think that that's kind of getting at what you were thinking about um, in terms of 
um, talking to students about particular kinds of outcomes for them. And that's a, that's a sort of continued thing. So, it, so the subject might change as we're going, but that sort of notion of moving from, from sort of neophyte to a person that embodies the, um, the meat of that issue is, is the direction that we're always trying to go. And so we, as you said, the, you know, it, they may see something as a failure, but, but I might see it as them moving way more into the sort of center of that community of practice or something like that. Let's let's stick with that for a second because I kind of want Leslie and Suzanne to weigh in on a on a portion of that with um, the it's actually so Leslie and I have talked about this a lot. It's actually really hard to notice students' interesting thinking, right? And so coming off of Peter, what you just said, we both are saying about failure or uh, uh, appropriations or attempts at learning something can be written off as just wrong, right? Like. It doesn't look like the canonical version of an answer, so therefore, and I don't, I don't know, so it's just wrong. So Leslie and I talk about a lot when we're co-teaching in science, co and I say co-teaching every time I say it because I'm, I'm not a physic, <laughs> I don't teach physics, and so Leslie would notice something that students are doing that's really, that's really because it's really hard to do that outside of field. So I wonder if Suzanne and Leslie could even kind of chime in. I want to think about like how do you get to a place where you notice, even when they're struggling, that the idea is really interesting. And Leslie I think could talk about it in terms of a science class, but Suzanne I think could talk about it in terms of how she gets to know her readers and what they like and can you know suggest books in ways like I've seen no one else do before. So I can, um, if that seems like a fair approach, I think it'd be interesting to kind of think about that in the inquiry classroom. How do you notice? How do you get to know? I'll go first. <laughs> uh, so I, I have a friend who talks about this as cultivating intellectual empathy for your students. And I love that phrase that um, Everyone has an idea for a reason, and sometimes it's really hard for them to be explicit about what that reason is. This is with scientific ideas, you know, like we all have an intuition that brown doesn't belong in the rainbow. And we all have hard way, like being really explicit in, in figuring out what's the right vocabulary to explain what's so special about brown or pink or something like that. Or um, that kind of language is my job as an instructor is to help them articulate ideas that are difficult. Um, and and so if I if I walk into the classroom with this understanding that you know these are twenty year old kids who can speak but like you're you're most people are wildly intelligent and they're going to have great ideas for a reason and my job is to help them articulate those then um, then this problem of like seeing the science and what they're doing becomes a really challenging but fun intellectual game I get to play every day um, and it's. It's not that there's not going to be something there. There's always going to be something there, and and sometimes the harder it is to find it, the more fascinating it is when I when I when we can finally say like they're like yes, that's exactly what I'm trying to say. Um, like students will talk about one color is hiding another. It was one I remember like being really perplexed by what they meant by all the colors in the rainbow, just some are being hidden by others. And I think they meant it in a really precise way. They were using that word for a particular reason. They weren't saying it was blended or they weren't saying it was blocked, but but just really, um, and then getting everyone else in the class, like, oh, I think I know what they're saying. Here's what they're saying. Um, I think it's easy if you're not the scientist, maybe. I'm trying to, because Kim and I have talked a lot about 
you know, we'll leave a class at the end of the day and I'll talk about these cool ideas and she's just like, help me see that a little better. Help me understand what they're saying. And I think some of it is um, I have such precise language around these ideas um, through many years of being in this field that when I hear something slightly different, I'm really attuned to, um, like, I give someone a force, I give someone energy, I give someone a handshake, that kind of give, we have very particular language in science for transfer versus apply versus, and so when I start hearing different words that students are using, I really want to help tease them apart a lot more than I think a layperson would. They would hear that as all kind of, yeah, and we give things forces. Um, so I think that's part of, part of the, the challenge listening out of field, this is what Kim was bringing up, and, and hearing the complexity of student ideas when you don't have as refined an idea. It can be even harder to hear what students are saying. Um, so. um, that idea of a fun intellectual game, that is, that's worth that. Yeah, I love it. I like that name for what, what I'm hoping my students will find in their own digging into and exploring and finding themselves and finding other people in, in books in particular. Um, and sort of that's, that's what I think I'm modeling when I am noticing the, the books that are read, when I am listening, eavesdropping on conversations between kids, when I am paying attention to every writing sample that they've done in a way that is looking for the things that aren't what I might necessarily expect. I mean, I, yeah, I, I don't, I can't quite pinpoint why I can uh, pass books to people, um, but it is absolutely coming from a place of science, I think, like that, that maybe Mrs. Schmiel's third grade science camp that I went to um, made me intensely curious about the world, the patterns in the world the the misalignments and the alignments, the in-between spaces, just that. And so when I'm talking with people about books, but particularly middle school students, I'm looking for, um, I'm, I'm thinking about all of, about who they are, the people they want to be with, the people they don't want to be with, and then the world of books populated with people. And sort of, matchmaking, selling, there's something, I mean, there's a, like, there's, maybe you know Caps for Sale, that book, but it's a picture book, and I just have this metaphor in my head that I want to be that peddler with books stacked on my heads instead of, instead of hats, and I want the monkeys get my books, and so that peddler just sits down there with the just right stack of hats. I want to be the person with the just right stack of books. I had this English teacher in high school, veteran, 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 veteran. If you walked into her classroom, you would not think, oh, that's such a fantastically charismatic teacher. But she had this literal stack of books on her desk, and she nonchalantly gestured to them, and they were connected to the books we were reading by authors in little threads, and she just let, you know, like she let these little sprinkles of goodness out, and people, when they were ready for a variety of reasons, grabbed onto those, and I think that that impacted me greatly in the way I think about my students as readers. If if I have a person who, yeah, yeah, talking to them, making them talk to each other, making them 
pay attention to what they like and what they didn't like and what would confuse them in a book and that. So, so the common the common thread there too. Um, it's it's striking me. First of all, the script the the actual descriptions of your classrooms always make me very giddy. Um, is the common thing there is uh, students are talking more than than y'all. You know, you can't notice interesting, it's really hard to notice interesting thinking or notice interest and be able to suggest something if they never get to talk. And that sounds really simple, but um, I think there's therein lies the difference is that they're in classrooms with you where they probably talk more than you do. I'm, I'm going to assume <laughs> that that's the way you hear what they're interested in. So. Um, can we talk a little bit about, I kind of promised as part of this series that we'd also, I mean in some ways it's going to take us back a little bit, but I, we've kind of promised that we'll think about what day one or week one looks like in classrooms that have a focus on inquiry and curiosity. And I wonder if you could all uh, talk a little bit about how you do that kind of setup so that students know the space and their expectation of that space. I'll cue somebody, Leslie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sure. I have a I have a pretty routine day one now. Um, so I start my students off on day one, handing out pages from famous scientists' notebooks. Um, and first, we get to know names. I I make sure we all know everyone's name, and then then I pass out these pages of students' notebooks and our scientists' notebooks, Einstein's, Marie Curie. Darwin across the board, um, and I just ask them to like kind of what they notice and what surprises them. And what we're going to be doing, I, they also know this by the end of the day, is we will be keeping our own notebooks, um, and they're going to be developing a rubric for um, what should I be looking for if I want to know that you're doing science in this class. And here, here's what science looks like when other people are writing it down in their notebooks. Um, and it's a deliberate kind of you get to come up with a rubric. Um, you are collectively responsible for the, how we're going to be assessing each other in this class. Uh, we're going to be doing science in this class. So we're not going to be, it's not going to be a notebook where you write down, there's often surprised to find that you open it up, there's no like materials hypothesis section. Um, that, that every notebook you look in, you know, just has such, such a thumbprint of the character of whoever kept those notes, that they're not going to be uniform. Um, that who you are as an individual needs to come through in the notes that you're taking and things like that. So I really, I foreground, I think that alone says this class is going to be a little different um, from your typical science class and Kim has called it kind of putting the end first, is that what you say? Um, more or less, something like that. That, that, that. The thing we're going to be working on developing, I'm going to show it to you now, except you're going to do it on your own with, with something else. So. Um, and, and I have so loved this first day activity that I just honed it over the years, but it's pretty, pretty set. Bringing me in forward, Kim says. Yeah. I, too, call on um, textual artifacts to build the, our space and a lot of touching books and moving books and looking at books and flipping through books and making lists of books. But that against the backdrop of brainstorming across days about what is communication and what is it for and how communicative we are as humans and all the other communicative beings in the world or creatures in the world. And so we physically 
create a space that reminds us all the ways. Um, I, I vividly remember you know, students bringing in magazines, bringing in, you know, years ago when many of my students didn't have compu access to computers. It was not that long ago, but they just didn't. Anyway, doesn't matter. Um, representations of things and our walls were just covered with all the messages, facial expressions, um, clothing, like all the ways that we are getting information and getting messages. And, um, and so having that artifact, that textual base that we can return to seemed a really powerful way to start. So, yeah, so the class that I was talking about before with the, where we're reading these Booker Prize books, um, we started that with, like, just a, a, a conversation about, like, what makes something good? What, what sorts of, you know, and then we switched from just sort of, like, something to a book. And so we generated a bunch of different ideas, and then we sort of compartmentalized them and into some, like, different sort of, classifications and things, and then talked about which ones seemed to be most important and which ones didn't. And so this, we, we sort of developed a framework that we would use as the semester continues um, for them to be thinking about the questions that arise for them that we, we sort of did as, um, you know, I think as you both have said, like sort of a, a group norming about, about certain kinds of ideas. So, um, so that seems to be like, a thing that that immediately decenters uh, decenters me and decenters sort of different you know other sorts of notions of centralized authority um, and instead um, positions students to have authority about something that they've been studying for a while. So it's um, yeah. So that seems to be a a way that generates um, student buy-in and student engagement from the start. So that's that's kind of how I've. That's, I mean, that's sort of, you know, every class is a little bit different, but that's, but that's the kind of thing, I guess, the kind of move for early in the semester to help that happen. So, so um, what the, I like the use of artifacts across a lot, right, or the use of um, even student-generated, I mean, all you kind of talked about student-generated, right, rubrics or ideas or whatever. Um, I, I think I said this last week too. I, I really, I really believe that day one or week one, but I, day one, that if you want them to see their questions or their ideas as central, then on day one, their ideas better be central. You know, I don't think you can, you do all the talking on day one and then expect them to do all the talking on day two. I, I think from from the get go, you have to have structures in place that are like this is what this class is like, and you're a valued member. Names, I mean, Leslie said names. I think that's a huge part of it. Um, we had a really good question on Twitter that I thought we could pick up, which is, um, and it was posed as like, you know, what should you, uh, what's the one thing you'd say you avoid um, in a classroom there? You see, learning as emergent, um, and so I wonder if you could think about that. I'm going to throw out. Um, I think the one thing that can get in the way is fear <laughs> on the part of the teacher. Uh, I think you, the one thing I have to avoid is I have to stop worrying that I have all the answers. Like I can't have a classroom where I see ideas of students as important and ideas of emerging if I'm worried that I'm going to be wrong or because I'm going to be. 
<laughs> there's going to be a day when a student just knows more about something than I do. So for me, it's kind of letting go of some of that fear. I don't know. Can others chime in on what if you what's kind of death to the emergent learning classroom? I think it's really a, a big thing for me is related to what you've just said. It's is owning that as the teacher. Like yes, hold, getting rid of your fear inside of you and allowing yourself to negotiate the journey the, the over timeness, but also to invite our students into that too. That if, I mean, it's such a different position for the teacher to be facilitator, guide, participant, all of those roles, and teacher, that I think we up front need to let them know that we're we're learning to and we're figuring it out with all of our knowledge that we bring. Yeah, that, that last bit, the with the knowledge we bring. So it's because, I mean, I don't know. I hate the sort of like fake, ooh, well, I don't know. What, you know, the, the sort of pretend thing of like trying to draw students out. I think it's okay to say like, um, let me tell you the, some, the things that I know about this right now. And and give some background or some context or some whatever um, with the sort of acknowledgement that, but you know, I only know this because I was curious about it before class started and I looked it up somewhere or something, you know, I mean, some things like that, that, that it's, it's a practice. It's not, you know, this sort of like, I'm not the embodiment of all knowledge or something like that. It's this, it's, you know, I, I, I figured this stuff out and I'm going to share it with you but I'm learning right alongside you all the time as well, that it's a shared endeavor thing. That seems like really critical. Um, but it is but it is scary. I mean, and there are some students, those are the ones that we were talking about earlier, the ones that, you know, sort of want the expert in the classroom. They want you to know the whole thing, and, and they, like, seem, you're worried that uh, they're going to, you know, lose any respect for the class or for you or for whatever, and so those are, those are you know, scary things, but those are the things you have to let go. Yeah, so one of the things I often say is don't ask a question you already know the answer to, um, which is like, don't play the guess what I'm thinking game, which doesn't mean I don't know like my own answer to what, what colors don't belong in the rainbow. It's that my honest uh, reason for asking the question is because I don't know what you think, and I really, really want to know what you think about this. And my job as a teacher, I could know, I could not know, whatever. Um, our job in this classroom is to cultivate your ideas. And sometimes it absolutely becomes relevant what I know and that I that I speak honestly. I don't pretend not to know something ever. Uh, if a student asks me something, I'll be like, well, I can tell it. Do people really want to know what we mean when we say light travels as a wave? Because it's it's not doing this thing as it travels. And so if, if we if you want to have a moment where I put that on the table and we'll talk about it, and then we'll be like, oh, okay, so it's not doing this. So let's go back to then what we were talking about earlier. Um, I try not to answer questions that didn't come up, but I try not to ask questions I already know the answer to. So those are things I have done. Awesome. So um, tiny bit of time left. I'm wondering if we can kind of do uh, some final thoughts. And um, because all of us work so much with uh, emerging teacher, <laughs> future teachers, um, what, what are you going to say to the, the brand new teacher? about support for inquiry-based classrooms. So it's kind of the opposite of what to avoid. It's like, what's the, the one thing? Suzanne, you want to start us off? Yeah, yes, sorry. Yes, I can. Um, the, my biggest message to 
my students is that there's always tomorrow. And so while we've just said having this first day that establishes um, the ways that we do things, the ways that I'm inviting you to be in the class, and the ways for us to think about assignments and activities as not things we do, but things as we do them, they're doing things to us. Um, so I want my students not to think that they need to commit to a whole year or that when they mess up that they can't reorient and try something else or if they start the year a certain way that they can't spend some time doing um, doing English if from this perspective and still you know, have other things on other sides of it if they need to as they become um, as it becomes their way of doing teaching. I guess I would say it's just it's a fun way to teach. Um, that uh, I think when I first the first time I tried having such an open inquiry kind of thing, I just fell flat on my face. Um, you know, I asked this great question. And I was like waiting for them to give great answers. And there, there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes, but there's also like. Uh, it no longer feels scary at all to me, right? Like there, you'll you'll reach a point where it's just like it's such an easy way to be in the classroom and such a like I couldn't I couldn't sustain my work as a teacher if I weren't doing this kind of thing where um, where every every year every semester every class is going to be different and that's that's what makes teaching fun uh, for me. Yeah, I would echo I would echo that exactly that. Um, that I tell I tell the pre-service teachers, you know, that if they if you know if you know everything or you think you know everything, then you're not going to be doing anything. You're not gonna, nothing that happens in the classroom is going to be that you know engaging to you. What you know, that's not a that's not an intellectual life. You know, you want you want to have this like amazing. You know things where you are learning along with your students every every semester, and you're engaging with these interesting ideas, and you're doing cool stuff. Um, that's what that's that is what sustains me as well as a teacher. That's why I love to teach. It's like I hate having reassigned time when I'm not teaching to do administrative things. Ugh, you know, but um, <laughs> but you know I just you know it's it's the thing that keeps you you know sort of you know, youthful in spirit and uh, and satisfied with your job. Yeah, I agree. It's like learning. They le I learn something every day. I'm in the classroom from the students. It's the best part. Um, I want to thank you all for an amazing conversation. This uh, inquiry-based pedagogy is not easy, and it's not always easy to describe. And you guys are awesome. Um, we're going to wrap up our uh, second webinar of our September series, Back to School. Um, that doesn't mean the conversation has to stop. You can continue the conversation on Twitter using Connected Learning or B2S hashtags. Um, and then Connected Learning will also have a full video of this as an archive up on Connected Learning TV. Dot com. Um, you can share that with your networks. And then there's a great newsletter, actually, you can sign up for with Connected Learning TV, and then you, you find out what the next uh, webinar series are. Um, next Tuesday at 2 Pacific, we're going to be talking about distributing expertise in the classroom um, with uh, Kevin Hodgson, Laura Gibbs, and Jarrett Crone across elementary school teachers to uh, college teachers. 
and they do some beautiful work where kids take real ownership of those classrooms as well. So that'll be fun. And really, thank you again. Thanks again, everyone, for, for participating. And we'll see you all on Twitter. <laughs> Have a good day.